Welcome to the Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. Thank you for joining me today in the podcast series that explores everything to do with experience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Experience. And I'm extremely excited uh, to welcome Colin Ellis. Colin is a keynote speaker, author, and culture change specialist. So welcome, Colin, to the show. Thank you, Rodney. It's great to be here. No, fantastic. And hopefully post-Easter chocolate, we can have a really enthralling conversation about what, what is your speciality in culture. Yeah, awesome. And post-Easter chocolate, definitely. I try not to gorge myself on chocolate or culture. So uh, yeah, hopefully this will go well. No, fantastic. Well, look, maybe a good place to start, like always, is for the people that might not be aware of your wonderful books and programs and the great work that you do. Can you give us a little bit of uh, your background so that we know where you fit in? So I was a I was a permanent employee for thirty years, uh, Rodney. I you know certainly for the last twenty of those I was in, involved in in major projects in the private sector, and I headed up big government departments uh, for the project delivery as well uh, in uh, the UK, which is where I'm from originally. I'm from Liverpool in the UK originally. Uh, I spent six years in Wellington in New Zealand and now live in Melbourne. And that's what I did. You know, I was a permanent employee for thirty years and was a part of lots of great cultures and some not so great ones. Uh, and then five years ago, I felt there was a real lack of common sense, inspiration, motivation in the in the culture and the project delivery space. Rodney, I went to an underwhelming conference, shall we say, and I and I figured I'm not having never really been a moaner. I figured I would kind of you know back myself to start delivering a message that I feel would resonate with people like me, kind of people who've at the ground floor on the ground level also senior execs on on how to do this thing called culture and project delivery well and so for the last five years as you mentioned i, I keynote speaking I, I run facilitated programs and I, i've written four books no that's fantastic well as we all know i think we've all had experience and as the name of the podcast different experiences with good cultures and bad cultures and i suppose a good place to to start because i'm fascinated with how we can understand culture better to affect change. And I'm a firm believer that we need to do that. What, for you, does great culture look like? Well, you can, you can, I always think, Rodney, that you can sense great culture the second you walk onto a, onto a floor, you know, in, in, in an office. And what it, lo- what it actually practically looks like before I get into kind of some of the more mechanical things in the podcast, what it looks like is is people smiling, people interacting, a sense of belonging. There's no kind of tacky posters up everywhere reminding people of values and visions. It's, you can just see it being lived out in the open. It you know it looks like uh, people choosing the environment that they want to work in. It it looks like leveraging technology. It's, it's one of those things that you really get a sense of it whenever you, you know, you kind of walk into an office, you walk into a building. I always say, you know, whenever I walk into a shop, you get it immediately get a sense of the culture and the, it, with, with the staff It's how well do they interact? How well do they communicate? How well do they treat their customers? So, you know, practically that's what it looks like. You know, I, I, I guess more of the method is it's got a good vision. There's a sense of, there's a good set of values to keep people connected and people know how to work together and be the best versions of themselves, Rodney. So there's that real sense of belonging. 
Yeah, and I think culture really is something that, I don't know, I think it's, you, you've got to feel it, like you said, you can observe it, but really it's about people, you know, feeling it and being that that connection. And I suppose I always fascinated and, and might ask you a, a tough question up, up front, really, which is, do you believe cultures can be built or developed versus is culture something that comes from a whole bunch of other activities and initiatives that creates sort of the environment that that what people feel creates that culture which which side if any do you subscribe to it's yeah it's a really good that's a really good point I actually think it's a bit of both Rodney and and I know that from my own experience um because what you can't afford to do is ignore the cultural context within which you sit I think there are two I've seen too many examples of 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 managers, not necessarily leaders, managers who come in and say, right, we're gonna do it my way. It's my way or the highway. And they try and impose culture, they ignore the existing cultural context and the things that people do really well. So I think it's a little bit of that. You've got to acknowledge what kind of organization you exist within, what are the challenges that they face, what's all the good stuff that they do right now? And that has to be kind of taken into consideration. But then cultures, because cultures never stop changing, they never stop evolving. Rodney, what you've got to start then doing, like any good recipe, is you've got to fold in different ingredients now and again. If you want a different cake, you have to add different ingredients. And and I think it's crucially important from moving from one state to another is making sure that you do all of the stuff well that you do right now is kind of getting rid of the stuff that you don't do so well and then introducing new things to help the culture grow into the thing that you need it to be right there and then. And then you have to keep feeding and watering it so it can evolve from there. So I think it's a bit of both. No, well, that's a really good answer. And I suppose when we think about culture and particularly the context for me, which is around the workplace and and the future of work and, and looking at how, I suppose, certain organizations approach that through transformation as more of a program, which I, I have a little difficulty with that notion per se, because I think it's a, it's a constant rather than there's something that you do and then you go away because about how we create that new normal. How do you think that we can, from a sense, from a culture, you know, can culture actually be changed? It, it can be changed, but I think too many people, Rodney, particularly senior managers, I think too many people are looking for a, as of the 31st of December, it's now changed and here's the benefit that we'll get. And that's just not the way culture works. It can change and evolve over time, but then it keeps, cha- I, I, you know, I agree with the point that you made, then it keeps changing from that point. You know, the work that I do with organizations, I get to them, I get them to a point where they've redefined the culture that they need such that they can build from that, you know, and it takes six, it's certainly in, in the work that I've done, it takes between six and 18 months to really change a culture if you have the commitment from the people. But in that time, it, at the end of that 18 months, is it is it what we agreed at the start? Well, no, what we agreed at the start was something to really get us going. And what we did was create a sense of belonging, a, a sense of engagement and passion that people were like, okay, cool, we've got to the place now where I can be the best version of me and I'm happy. Now I want to take this further and keep growing and keep making it better. No one ever changed the culture with a click of a fingers or overnight to the point where someone was able to tick a box and go, right, we've got the culture that we need. We're done. You know, great cultures never stop changing. They never stop evolving. No. And I, I've been spending quite a bit of time thinking about the, the, the theory of this, you know, what is an organization? And some people I think misuse the ideas or misuse and interchange the words about a complicated or complex 
system and obviously you know a complicated system is like a watch so you know if a watch breaks you can sort of fix it because you know to go in and diagnose that and once you you do repair it it can be repaired but a complex system which is like weather or traffic there is no right or wrong answer it's sort of more organic if you like or an organism and so it's something that's ever evolving and obviously that's the kind of way I think about how we need to start finding different ways to approaching change and the way that we sort of construct the context of that which is why I think some strategies are fraught with danger because I don't think we live in an era anymore where we can spend all this time trying to come up with this kind of perfect answer, a perfect plan that's that's fueled with all this data. Because by the time we do that, it, you know, the opportunity has been missed. But also it sort of feeds back to that notion that to what you said, that there's culture can be fixed. You know, we, we've done this. We've identified the problem. Once we've solved that problem, you know, we've fixed it. And I don't believe that's the the, the essence of what an organization is, because it's a complex system, not a complicated system. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, 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 yeah. It makes perfect sense to me. And and but I, I guess the the language people use is they want to fix their culture, um, and what they don't understand, Rodney, is that is the component parts of it. So what you end up doing is paying lip service to it. So rather than actually addressing the complex issues that they face. Uh, it's more of a superficial statement they feel like they have to make to demonstrate to their staff that they, they're doing the right things, but then ultimately they, they never really invest in it anyway. Take digital transformation programs. You know, SAP did a, some research two years ago and they found that only 3% of digital transformation programs that they, that they surveyed were considered successful because people forget the transformation piece is the culture. So you've got all these organizations around the world who are doing digital transformation programs and like we're investing in digital transformation. It's like, cool, what are you doing to redefine the culture up front such that you can achieve the transformation that you're looking for? And it's like crickets. And it's like, we're, we're just putting in that tool. It was like, yep, yeah, okay, but you, you can put in a new ARP system, but there's no guarantee that it's actually going to work in the current cultural context within which it lives. And so I think people want to fix it without really wanting to fix it, if that makes sense, because they don't take the time to understand the component parts of it. And then they don't want to actually spend any money on it either. (laughs) You know, getting money for culture. Culture is always the first thing to go, even though it's the most important thing. You're enjoying another wonderful episode of The Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you and your organization want to redesign work, and drive experience, please reach out at rodneyhobbs.com. Now let's get back to the show. Well, I think there's a lot of different data that talks about the success or lack of success of transformation. But I think a couple of things in there is that there is this much, I think we need to understand that there's a very different role for senior leaders. And I'm not just saying executives because it's sort of command and control. I think that we can't just have senior leaders sort of cheerleading from the sidelines. You know, this, you know, change or transformation, I like the saying, is a contact sport. And they really have to be a very different type of advocate than just issuing the mandate. That's one thing about how we do this. And I think the other thing that we've been plagued with is that when we keep using and misusing the word digital, and then we say digital transformation, and I'm sure our listeners have many different understandings or perceptions of what that might mean. But I think we've always, you know, probably as a technologist and futurist, we've probably always slid down that we've gone and brought a new tool set 
rather than really trying to, as you point out, Colin, address the cultural impact. And for me, as well as that, which is actually redesigning work, because I think the thing that keeps working against us probably from a cultural dimension, as well as a work dimension, behavioral dimension, is the fact tradition. And tradition is how we've always done it. And it seems to be that natural resistance that ultimately, when the program finishes, finds a way to flourish again and grow back over whatever the new shiny thing was. And therefore, people then go, well, that didn't work, did it? Yeah, 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 exactly right. Could, that's absolutely spot on, uh, Rodney. And I think that the, the thing with, with managers, and there's very few leaders in the world, I think people like to think that they're on a leadership team, so that makes them a leader. But they're only really a leader when they elevate others and they make room for cultural growth. And you're right, they, they, they support the business of cultural evolution. That's what they do. And they're constantly reminding people of their responsibility. You know, I had a chat with Tony Shea, who's the CEO of Zappos, uh, last year in Las Vegas. And I said, what's your role as the CEO? You know, you've written a book. And he said, it's my role to support my managers in making sure we've got the culture that we need to be continually successful as a business. He said, because I recognize as the CEO that every sale that we make is down to how well the staff feel connected to what we're trying to do. And so, uh, yeah, so I, so, so I agree with the point that you made. It's really down to managers to support the business of evolution such that you can, you can roll out any tool, any new process. And if you've got the culture that you need, then everything will be successful forever. Well, I think, you know, as we all know, that the data points that most people leave their job because of their manager. So I think it goes back to, you know, one of the contentions of what I talk about in employee experience, which is you've got to kind of live that value and that cultural execution through every one of the touch points and a manager and whether it's a process, a tool or whatever. These are all opportunities for an organization to be living in a in a true living system context what it believes in to connect people, to make that interconnectedness and belongingness so that everybody can, as you say, be their best self and in being their best self, do their best work. And if you're executing that at the edge of your organization continually, then you have an unfair advantage over your competitors. Mm. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. And when you look at all of the great organizations around the world who constantly hit their targets, you look at those organizations who in uncertain times are able to quickly pivot. And I'm not talking about agility. I'll talk about that in a second. Is it's All of those organizations have got people who have got a growth mindset or they're encouraged to have a growth mindset where they believe things are possible, where it's not for them to be cynical and skeptical about what they could potentially do. It's for them to roll up their sleeves and go, okay, well, we're in this situation. What, what are we going to do to fix it collectively? Um, and, and management are there to support that. No, fantastic. Well, I suppose just to finish that sort of theme of, of discussion, you know, so what do you believe is the role of senior managing in all of this then? It's obviously, as you were saying, to support their managers, but but what's your viewpoint of of how they, because again, we all, we all know the trite sayings around this, but, you know, to me, I always say leadership is not a title. You know, leadership is something that can be demonstrated by anybody, regardless of their role, because it's about leadership being uh, observed when it's required. Yeah, it's about and it's about setting the behavioral standards that you want others to follow, Rodney. I, you know, I, any, I completely agree. Anybody can be a leader. You know, you look at someone like Greta Thunberg. What is she? Seventeen. She's totally a world leader, more so than some of the world leaders, because she's in tune with 
the current zeitgeist, the planetary needs, and she conveys a message in a way that's accessible. And, and leadership too often is seen as a development program that you send a bunch of people on or else leadership is on your business card or it's part of a meeting that you suddenly get invited to. That's not, that's not leadership at all. Leadership is being a role model for other people to follow. Leadership is humility. It's vulnerability. Leadership is empathy. Uh, but it's still having the smarts to, to, to get the job done, offer up mentoring, coaching advice, really elevate and support other people. Um, and, and act as an umbrella when things are falling down that you don't want your team to get covered in. You know, and, and, and great leaders, what they're able to do is take kind of none of the credit and all of the blame. And, and leadership requires a, a whole lot of, of self-awareness. It requires continual self-improvement. Uh, it, it requires you to swim against the tide a lot of the time as well, Rodney, because, you know, quite often what, what some cultures will do is try and dictate the way that people behave. And what leaders are able to do is to go, no, that's not the way that we do things. That's not how we should treat other human beings. I'm going to do something slightly different. And that's how they create a name for themselves. That's how they create a followers. And from that, they then create more leaders. And then all of a sudden, you've got these really efficient subcultures within your organization. And everyone's going, what are those guys doing over there? And how do we copy it? Um, and I think that's, that's what great leaders do. Yeah, I definitely think that leadership is, you know, one of the traits there is that they need to model the behavior that they're expecting, because I think that's a very key part of the not just being that kind of superficial cheerleading. But I also think that we've got to think more broadly of some of the the context that we work in, because I still think for a lot of organizations, they're still you know, really labored under a DNA that came from the last industrial revolution, which is still wedded in the conditions of working in a factory and the ideologies that that were the, the forerunners to the 40-hour week and the way that work has been developed. And, you know, really till Drunker, halfway through the century, sort of termed that beyond production of things and advanced services, we started to move into this era of manipulating information. Hence, he coined the knowledge work. And then ultimately, I think in the 60s, refined that to the knowledge worker. And I think going into the 21st century, we've got a very different opportunity in front of us to to the role that humans play in work. And I suppose that's probably a nice little bridge in the sense that obviously, as we record this podcast, Colin, we're living through, you know, unprecedented uh, time and and crisis in COVID-19. And obviously, we're really now all not willing, but sort of unwilling participants in the world's largest experiment of what most people would refer to as remote working. How do you Mm -hmm think this is going to change what happens when when the storm passes when we can more optimistically recover from this how do you think this is going to affect us well i think first and foremost rodney it's proved the skeptics wrong i think there are many people and they're quite old-fashioned in their thinking that's not to say the the older generation is old-fashioned in their thinking that just believe that we can set and forget culture, that that everyone should be in the office nine to five. And don't get me wrong, you know, there is some work that's still better suited when you're all face-to-face in the same space, you know, and the, the research um, backs that up. But I think what we've, what we've proved more than anything is that the tools do work. Uh, we've proved that flexibility is an important part of life which we knew already. I think generationally what it will also demonstrate is that we communicate in vastly different ways. I'd like to think, although you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the data on this, I'd like to think that email 
uh, usage is reduced. I, I think, you know, there's been a, a heavy emphasis on use of specific uh, communication and collaboration tools. I think there are still too many organizations, certainly in the people that I've talked to, Rodney, who are trying to use too many things and, and, and are making things quite complicated for themselves when they can just unpick that and say, let's just focus on using this for this and this for this. Um, but I think that real emphasis on humanity, that's that's the thing that I would want to see stick more than anything. And so, you know, at, at, at its simple level is people who don't come into work when they've got a heavy cold. Like that has been the norm for 30, 40 years because of the feelings that people have had towards work. And, and often that's generated from managers, right? So I'd like to think now that people are like, I have a heavy cold. I don't want to spread that germ. I'm going to stay and work from either work from home or I'm going to take a sick day to recover. Um, and so hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll lose a bit of that hero mentality and, and cultures will start to soften to the point where um, they're, they're able to bend more flexibly to suit the individual needs of workers. Yeah, look, I, I, I hope that we learn a lot from this. And I mean, I, I definitely am optimistic that we are. And I think there's definitely been an outpouring of, of demonstrations of empathy and connection and belonging. But I, I also think we have to go beyond just thinking that because people used to go to an office and sit in a meeting room for, for eight hours, back-to-back meetings, and now they're just sitting at home eight, you know, eight hours worth of back-to-back Zoom or Skype or Teams or whatever. And I also think, you know, the day of email is gone. You know, email is a sequential, you know, quite, you know, at the time it broke a barrier of, of making us have an ability to communicate. But I think, you know, email suits some things, but I think we need to be more in this conversational based way of engaging and interacting rather than this kind of, you know, historical position that every time there's something that needs to be um, discussed or, or interacted on, it naturally is a meeting, a gathering. And I think we've all learned through our careers of how many endless meetings which really didn't serve a great purpose. I think we need to be refining those behaviors of when it's necessary for us to come together in that format versus the conversational threads or the collaborative type tool set. But I do think a lot of people have used this in the sense of the response to this crisis to still just do what they know what to do, which is sort of extend the boundary of the enterprise so people can work at home. And for a lot of us, we already were doing that. I think for a lot of other people, it is new to them and how we can have a meeting with two dogs and two birds and three children and all of the things that that go on. I think we have to think more about how work operates rather than that notion and that management context that I only sort of trust that you're working because I can see you, which is still wedded in that belief that work is somewhere I go. And obviously there are occupations and jobs where where clearly you do have to go there to do it. But I think for a lot of us that, that sit in that context of a, a person that works around information and knowledge, I think there, there's different opportunities here to how we shape what work will be. Because I don't believe when this finishes, we all just jump back in a car and drive to an office. I, I don't think that's be- the right response. And I don't think it's the right response either, Rodney, but I'm fully expecting some organizations that don't take culture seriously to do that. These are the organizations that weren't good at setting expectations to begin with. 
and and still aren't good at setting expectations now. I think some people will have this yearning to go back to the way things were before, and you can't do that now. You know, we we fundamentally no one's ever been through anything like this ever before. We've never done this before as a world. And so there's a real opportunity now to come back together and say, right, what did we learn? You know, and I'd, I'd love to get to the point with, with organizational culture where trust of people is assumed, not earned. You go where you need to go to be able to do your best work, to deliver the outcomes that we need as a team, such that the organization can grow and continue to be successful or provide public service, whatever it is. Um, and but, but, but I agree with you. I think there are still some people who are like, right, if we can just all get back to the office, that will fix everything. And, and I just don't believe that will happen. Well, I think you touched on some really key points for me. I mean, I, I do think the switch has flicked. I don't, you know, I think organizations that are going to try and go back to the way it was are, are going to find heavier resistance. And I hope that instead of finding resistance, they can maybe find more enlightenment. But I think you used a very key word, and that is about, I think there's an evolution of the employee and we have to acknowledge this. And I don't think we have, because a lot of this really is not been captured in any particular way, because we don't, who owns work? You know, if you went into an organization and say, well, who owns it? Well, obviously everyone owns it, but who does own it? Who, who has a view from an organizational perspective? Because we need to move beyond input and output, which is where I think historically we've been, which you can see that going back a hundred plus years to factories. And when we move from the field to the factory, but as you said, the key word is outcomes. So what if I could work for four hours and get the same outcomes? You still want me to work for 40. You see, this is where we've got the wrong ideology and notion of measurement, performance, productivity. And we need to be able to embrace the way that all people will work differently, not try to normalize the way people work, which is, to me, the 20th century, standardization, industrialization, optimization, which are contexts that came out of the last industrial revolution. And we know from this stanza in time, you know, work can largely be done if we automate. You know, you saw the CEO of Telstra saying that even though I'm hiring, I want to automate more because technology can do these repetitive, highly prescriptive type activities. Humans were the only technology 100 years ago that we could grab to do them. That isn't the case in the 21st century. So how do we connect the value of humans to that creativity and empathy. And as in one of my other podcasts, you know, creativity isn't four words on a post-it note, because again, that's trying to standardize creativity. And as Rhonda pointed out, what creative would ever work in that way? And the answer is they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And, and we're still good at talking, or senior managers are still good at talking about culture being the most important thing and yet stick to the mantra that what gets measured gets managed rather than from a culture perspective, what gets mentioned gets modified. What we want to do is create the kind of environments where we can talk openly about the, th- the ways that we can leverage technology, the different ways that we can work smarter, not harder, uh, such that we all benefit, the organization moves forward, and culturally we evolve to a place where we're never, we never stop looking for better, smarter ways to do things, rather than having a transformation project every three years and the hope that would work. 
Well, I liken those three-year transformation plans to, I think, something called the five-year Russian plan for anybody that uh, is a Gen X elder like myself and maybe grew up <laughs> when uh, when those results weren't too good. But I think we have to change, you know, because that mantra gets used a lot, right? But I think we've been measuring the wrong stuff and we have yeah. not had a, a grown-up conversation about how we try to understand all of the other type of measurements and metrics and insights that we can glean. And we can see that, you know, there's no shortage of data. Um, but I don't think we've yet got to a point in many ways that we know how to use the data to create insights that then can be actionable. And I think everybody's going to be somewhere different maybe on that journey. But I think there's a lot of emphasis, I know, in certain areas around people analytics. And I think we do need to get a better, just a different way, a different navigation, a different compass bearing to what we need to be thinking about and we need to experiment because I don't think, as we said, going back to complicated and complex, there isn't one right answer for everyone. I think everyone's going to find a different way to what makes sense for them, but they're not going to find it magically. You know, there's no just add water and here we are, or we need to fix that and someone has a solution and we fixed it. I think this is an evolutionary, a constant thing that we have to experiment and we have to change a lot of different things. So we have to embrace the fact that we tried something and yeah, it didn't, it didn't give us what we expected or it didn't give us what we wanted. So we, that's fine. Where at the moment, a lot of people still live. And I grew up in that where you fail, you're gone. It's like a career limiting move, right? And we've got to embrace failure as a mechanism on its way to success, not as a full stop in the conversation. Well, that's right, because every failure represents a learning opportunity, Rodney. So what we want to do is to assess what we did, look at why it failed and say, OK, well, what did we learn? And then factor that into the into the next risk that we take. You know, the riskiest thing to do is to take no risks. And and, and so failure has to be a big part of, of what you're comfortable doing. We don't deliberately set out to fail. I'm not a big fan of failing fast because I think when you fail fast, you miss opportunities to maybe pivot and do something ever so slightly different. Um, but, but if it's not okay to fail, if it feels unsafe to fail, then no one will ever take a risk. And consequently, we'll, we'll always get the culture that we've got. It will never change. It will never grow. It will never evolve. As an organization, will stagnate. Bit, the kind of results will suffer. Even though people will provide the feedback, it will fall on deaf ears and will revert to a command and control structure from 30 years ago and cross our fingers and hope that it works. And it won't. No, and I, and I absolutely agree. And I think I've never liked that fail fast because it seems to be that, we, you know, you, the, the answer is given away in the title. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think we need to experiment and we need to accept that not all experiments will work. I think that's a very different mindset than that mantra. And even the authors of Agile said, look, it's not about the process, the tools or the methodology. It's about the mindset. And this is the thing that I've always contend. We've got to change and progress the mindset, the way that we're thinking about these things. Otherwise, to the points that you just raised, all of those outcomes that you spoke of is essentially the organization is standing still. And if an organization is standing still, it is by nature going backwards because of where everybody yeah. else is going. You're enjoying another wonderful episode of The Business of Experience. I'm your host, Rodney Hobbs. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please ensure you subscribe, like, and share. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and you know, all the great cultures in the world are already agile without talking about becoming agile. 
uh, Rodney. It, it, you look at the Agile Manifesto, which is a document that was written in 2001, which was basically, basically about trust and empowerment. No, there was nothing in the Agile Manifesto that said all meetings have to be do, done standing up. We need Kanban board. We, you know, p- people will, will, Gen Xers like us, will talk about the fact that we were doing that in the late 90s. What the Agile Manifesto was about was enough with the command and control. That's from two, three decades ago. This is not post-war. Why don't you trust us to do the job that you've given us and we'll deliver products that work? And that's what the Agile Manifesto was about. They even said, we want to work for organizations that do more than talk about people as being their most important assets, but treat people as the most important assets. So you're right to say that that this concept of agility is all about the mindset of the individuals and then them being empowered to do the job in the way that they see fit. Exactly. And I think that we also have to understand that, you know, we've kind of built an industry, which is still by many dimensions, a very young industry in the sense of technology, that we take those ideologies And what do we try and do with them? We try to standardize them into a methodology, a toolkit, a process, a certification, and a badge to then sort of beat the living daylights out of it and make it the problem again. You know, we're trying to institutionalize the thing that is trying to unleash the creativity, which was the point of those types of manifestos. And I think we've got to keep reminding people to get back to that because that's the spirit of what I think is going to be a a key tenant, a foundation of how we redesign work, which leads us to what I think COVID is really the greatest opportunity to accelerate change. And I suppose I'd be interested to get your thoughts as we sort of reach the end of our show today. You know, what is your take on leadership that's being provided through this crisis? I think it's hit and miss, Rodney. If I'm honest, I think there are there are there are pockets of good leadership. Um, you know, we've seen that globally, but there's been a real lack of connectedness. I think there have been so many mixed messages. I think there have been so many different rules put in place for different people, and kind of like it's different for us in Australia than it is for my dad back in the UK. Um, I think everybody understands what they need to do. But what we're looking for is a little bit of guidance. We're looking for a little bit of empathy. We're looking for some stories. And, 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 and you know, often the best messages are told using stories. Uh, we we want to see how it's affecting these individuals. And I think what, you know, the, the, the good leaders, the people who are going to come out of it well, are those that were transparent, they were open, their communications were regular, they uh, changed the message frequently in terms of the way it was delivered. I don't mean the, the content, but the way it was delivered. Sometimes it was at home. Sometimes it was at an, a podium. Uh, these were the people that were doing all of the things that everybody else should be doing. So behaviorally, you know, we've seen some so-called government ministers have to resign because they thought that the rules didn't apply to them. The chief medical officer in Scotland didn't even follow their own guidance. You know, we had a government minister in New South Wales who just decided he was going to drive to his holiday house. You know, that that's not leadership. And, and so I think leadership has been mixed, but there are some real standout examples that I think that we can learn from. And it centers around empathy, vulnerability, and the ability to, to communicate a real humane message whilst ensuring that the seriousness of what we're going through hasn't been lost. No, and with all of these things, I would agree. I mean, I think there's been some some great examples and there's been some poor examples. And, you know, I think the leadership being provided by the Prime Minister in New Zealand is one of those examples of great leadership 
uh, as she's demonstrated before when confronted with crisis, right? Um, and I think it's also highlighted, you know, the good things and bad things about our own structures without making it a political side, like which side you sit. I think we've seen our leadership come together, but then we've also seen that when they've come together, they've gone away and done different things, which then, as you pointed out, has made it a little bit more challenging than maybe it needed to be to understand the consistency of what, as citizens, we were being asked to do. As you know, we sit here in Victoria where we seem to be finding people a lot more than everywhere else. And, you know, even that's now being highlighted as we record this show. But I think, you know, hindsight and history will tell and adjudicate who who dealt with this and who led through this because I don't think this is about managing through the crisis I think this is where we need leadership to lead us to the other side and there will be another side and I'm very optimistic that I hope that a great majority of us are given the opportunity to learn share and connect as we come through this so that we create something that is better because ultimately that is our human endeavor and evolution as a as a species to continue to grow and i think we've got the greatest opportunity and the greatest catalyst to really further those those ends yeah nobody nobody ever wants to come to work and to kind of be the worst version of themselves and so organizations have been missing a huge opportunity if they threw everyone straight back to the grindstone post covid um it is an opportunity to share stories to kind of celebrate what we achieve but also to look at what we learn such that it can be factored into future ways of working yeah and i i think jacob morgan you know author had a wonderful diagram that he uses as part of some of his presentations where he says when people start at work they are already empowered and then the organization fundamentally kind of disempowers them to then realize they've got to put a whole bunch of different things back in place to try and empower them so it seems a little bit like the synergy to education where children are naturally curious and creative uh, creative yet we go through a process to kind of parrot them into a learning model from the, the you know the ages and that isn't what reaps the greatest benefits and the greatest opportunity for us to acknowledge and celebrate the individualistic nature of what it is to be human, because we're all different and, you know, we're a tricky species, right? And that feeds into all of this, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it really does. And I think that acknowledgement and that acceptance that everybody's different, everyone works in slightly different ways is one of the things, hopefully, that, that will come out of this. Uh, we'll really start to see those different styles. And and I'd like to think that managers will start to tailor the, the kind of the way that they empower people to that member of staff, which is fundamentally we're talking about empathy. Uh, but there's been a real lack of it in, in organizational cultures today. Yeah. And look, I think uh, without laboring the point, obviously, there are some very difficult decisions that have been and maybe still will need to be made. Um, but as you say, those things need to be done with empathy uh at the top of the list and not just you know a lens on maybe just the the pnl or the balance sheet right and i think hopefully again i'll be more optimistic for what we can learn from this so maybe colin it's been enthralling and thank you for being so generous with your time is there a a final thought action and insight that maybe we could offer our listeners today to how they could you know not only listen to this, but walk away and do something. What is something actionable for culture that you could possibly uh, share? 
I, for, for me, Rodney, it's to have the culture conversation. So many people don't have the culture conversation. There's an assumption that everybody knows what the culture is. Everybody knows how to collaborate. Everybody knows how to behave. Everybody knows how to introduce new ideas. For the most part, unless you've done specifically some work on it, you don't. So every time the conditions change is to have the culture conversation, is to get to know each other well so you can get the best out of each other and then hold yourselves to the standards that you agree because, as you said at the start, culture is the sum of everybody. It doesn't belong to just one person. No, well, I think that's some very great words to, to finish today's show. And again, thank you very much, Colin. And for everybody who was listening, how can they find you, connect with you and, and find your other great work in your books and your site? They can go to my website. I've got a website, culturefix.xyz. Uh, most people connect with me on LinkedIn, Rodney, having heard the podcast and like to connect and, and I do it that way. Or you can just search for Colin D. Ellis. Uh, if you search for Colin D. Ellis on Amazon, you can grab a copy of my book, Culture Fix or the project book and find all kinds of resources and videos um, Yeah, that you may enjoy. Well, look, once again, Colin, thank you. And obviously to all the listeners, um, please go and visit Colin's resources. He has some wonderful stuff and some very great uh, insights captured in his wonderful books. And for everyone today, thank you again for being on another episode of the Business of Experience. And as always, we'll catch you in the next one.